1: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, October 7th. Soon, I'm going to be joined by Ed Harrison, and I want to learn his thoughts on the fiscal stimulus and the uh, K-shaped recession, which may be getting worse. But first, let's go to Peter Cooper for some price action. Peter? Thanks, Jack.
2: Yesterday, President Trump put an end to Congress's effort to assemble a fiscal stimulus package, instructing his representatives to stop negotiating until after the election. This was announced not too long after Fed Chair Jerome Powell's appeal for a more aggressive fiscal policy response in order to not thwart the recovery that the U.S. is experiencing. He cites that there is, quote, a long way to go, end quote, in order for the economy to get back on track, and that withholding fiscal stimulus would weaken the recovery and create undue hardships for businesses and families. With fiscal stimulus negotiations being dead in the water, markets reacted very strongly. S P S&P 500 closed 1.4% down on the day yesterday, NASDAQ 1.6% down, and the Dow 1.3%. However, even as it seemed like Trump got up and walked away from negotiations, he tweeted later Tuesday night about Congress immediately passing aid for airlines and for the payroll protection program. He also proposed a standalone bill for another round of stimulus checks amounting to $1,200 to Americans immediately. He again put on the pressure for this specific bill this morning. It's not entirely clear what happened that made President Trump change course, whether he listened to the outcry or whether he's implementing a negotiation tactic to re-leverage the discussions in his favor. Regardless, markets heard the message right away and responded favorably. The S&P is up 1.4% today, and the Nasdaq is up 1.7%, the Dow 1.6% as they recover some of yesterday's losses. U.S. airlines are up two after experiencing deep declines yesterday. United is up 4.6%, American Airlines 4.4%, Delta 3.2%, Spirit 3.9%, and Southwest 2.6%. Treasury yields experienced a slight decline yesterday, but have since bounced back. SPX futures dipped yesterday as well, but are also rallying again today. And the VIX also spiked in the announcement of the end of stimulus negotiations, but has been tapering off throughout the day. Interestingly enough, the VIX Curves movement between Monday, as expressed by the blue line, and Tuesday, which is the orange, experienced very little movement in the futures, whereas the spot price experienced the greatest spike. Between yesterday and today, today being green, the curve fell. It's possible that the VIX futures barely moved between Monday and Tuesday, as Trump's original intent was to save a larger stimulus package for after the election, which is less than a month away. Trump changing course today for targeted immediate aid may have ultimately lowered VAL altogether. Congressional Democrats have been very vocal about Trump walking away from a more comprehensive plan for fiscal support before the election, as hundreds of thousands of Americans are in dire need right now. However, we'll see how Congress responds now to his call for action, since he has flipped the negotiations on its head. And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Jack. Thanks,
1: Peter.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lipson Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
1: That's really interesting on the VIX Futures chart. Uh, all right, now I'm joined by Ed Harrison, uh, Managing Editor of Real Vision. Ed, welcome to The Daily Briefing.
3: Well, welcome to you as well. I should say, Jack, because if I'm not mistaken, this is your first time to host uh, the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm pretty excited. You know, I have a lot of energy as a result of it. I'm sure that you have some nervous energy uh, to being being in the hot seat for the first time. So I'm really excited to talk to you, Jack.
1: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm really excited too. You know, I'm no. Uh, I'm no Ash Bennington, but I'll do my best.
3: I'm sure you'll do great.
1: Uh, so I'll start out uh, with the question, Ed. What are you looking at today in the markets?
3: Yeah so actually you know the first thing that i was thinking about jack was the fact that the market's powered forward today i've been saying this a lot recently that the market's want to go higher and i think that when you just zoom out a little bit you can think about what i was talking about in july and august how i was saying september october was a time frame where we're going to we're going to see more volatility that the downside risk was there I feel as if you know that beginning of September period that was all we're going to see in terms of a correction, in terms of a down move. Uh, you know, obviously volatility still remains relatively high, but the sense that I get just from the price action is that uh, markets do want to go higher. So we we saw markets sell off to a certain degree as a result of the lack of fiscal stimulus that uh, Donald Trump said was going to come down the pike. Uh, but now uh, we're back off to the races again today because that's where markets went ahead, and uh, and so you know they'll look for any positive excuse to to move higher. So I feel as if um, you know we've we're past the point where we're going to see major downside risk, at least in the near term. None of the economic data are pointing to uh, the mar- the the economy falling out of bed. In the near term, I think you're looking three to six months down the line before you see any sort of impact from the things that we're talking about today
1: that's uh, really interesting. Um, Ed, you wrote a piece today in uh, credit write downs, and at the end of the piece, you struck a tone um, that to me struck somewhat of a contrast with what you said just now. um you seem uh, Ah, uh, somewhat pessimistic. I don't know if that's fair to say on the on the real economy. But what you're seeing now is you think that the financial economy, uh, stocks, bonds, commodities, um, still still has some room to run just because of the the uh, animal spirits.
3: Yeah. So I, I think that the real economy impacts that I'm concerned about aren't going to happen anytime in the near future. I think if you look at where the economy is now, we're still in an acceleration phase. I think we had the V-shaped part of the acceleration that happened before. We're now moving into a lower trajectory. You know, the slope of that line is lower, and we're going to see many more uh, negative surprises in that time, but not enough to derail uh, the the uptick that we've seen in, in share prices. Only at some point later down the line are we going to see whether or not stimulus is going to have a deleterious effect on the this, the this sustaining. Uh, nature of the recovery. Right now, we're sort of in a um, a, a what I would call inventory restocking uh, built recovery, and that's going to take us through probably for another month or two before we start to see uh, you know whether the second wave uh, of of layoffs and uh, their negative effects are going to have uh, a longer term impact. So, I would say that I'm uh, I'm relatively uh, sanguine about the near term from a economic perspective, but I think that there are real big risks, uh, especially as we hit the end of the year. Uh, we could get a fiscal cliff, and then as we go into the winter time in two
1: thousand and twenty one. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Ed, can you tell us a little bit about um, the data uh, that you're seeing, uh, the economic data? I mean, you, you mentioned that we're in a little bit of a restocking phase. Um, there were some services PMIs. I think you had. Um, your finger on the pulse. What are you seeing there?
3: Yeah. So uh, if you look at uh, the PMIs that came out, the ISM they came out earlier uh, in the week for the non-services, and I think that the uh, the manufacturing one came out at the end of last week. It's very interesting if you take a look at some of the numbers that are in there. Uh, a lot of the uh, the numbers you can see that it's growing. Uh, for instance, in the services PMI, uh, we had a number that was 63 for services. And then uh, in terms of the business activity, new orders was also up, employment was also up, uh, inventories, which had gotten down really low, are starting to be restocked, not only for the services, but also for uh, manufacturing. And in addition, I think that we're seeing some bouts of inflation on the manufacturing side, which is somewhat slowed on the, uh, the services side. So all in all what that's showing is, is is that there is oomph going forward the economy is moving forward uh but we're seeing numbers that are you know overall levels that are in the low 60s high 50s for diffusion index which means that uh it's not a just a entirely v-shaped upward uh climb out of a a 20 or 30 on the diffusion 50 being the median point between uh you know upward and downward mobility, right. that's not a great number uh, when you think about the absolute collapse that we had in March, April, May, but it's enough to keep the economy rolling over in a way that will keep asset prices supported. Moreover, I think that uh, when you look at what Jay Powell has been saying, you know, he basically was calling for fiscal stimulus. I think that you know that you're going to get some asset price support from the Fed, Without, in the absence of fiscal stimulus, you know what they call the monetary offset. So my view is that uh, you know financial assets are going to do well here for the near term. The economy is going to do relatively well uh, coming off coming off the basing effect over the near term. It's really as we look towards the end of the year and into two thousand and twenty-one that we have to have the, the most concern. And then, of course, I, I, I hasten to add, there's the election, which can throw a whole wrench into the whole thing.
1: Yeah, let's talk um, talk about the election. I know uh, in his uh, intro analysis, Peter uh, showed us a very interesting chart um, of the VIX curve. And you could tell that uh, there is sort of a peak uh, forming, and it has been formed for the past two months or so, around um, the election. How do you think? Think uh, that the various outcomes um, of the election uh, are going to impact the markets. and you know, normally, if I were to ask that question under a normal year, it'd be, "Oh, the Republicans going to win, or the Democrats going to win." But I think there are a lot of extra layers in there and, and nuances because, you know, is it going to be decided um, the day after? Is is the election uh, going to be essentially a, a hung jury until until um, December? W- what are you seeing there?
3: You know, I think that the pessimism associated with uh, absolute chaos is pretty much priced into the market to this point now. People are thinking that, uh, yeah, uh, bad things are going to happen. We're not going to know the outcome for a long time. I don't necessarily think that that's the case. Moreover, uh, the status quo, which is uh, divided government, is actually not particularly good for uh, the economy, as we can see when we're talking about stimulus. So Let's remember that we're about to be hit by A potentially devastating wave of the coronavirus in terms of the number of infections, uh, not necessarily in terms of the number of deaths, uh, but it it could be devastating on both levels. And we can't get ourselves ready to give any sort of relief to consumers and to small businesses. So what does that say about divided government? Um, I think all of that's priced into a degree. And so if you have one party that will be able to have you know a mandate going forward. There's much more likely to be stimulus, even if uh, you you did have divided government after the election is over. I I think the fact that there's less politics in the in the future and that it's now in the rearview mirror will really bring people uh, back to you know we really need to get something done on the fiscal front um, to to combat the virus. And you know as I'm saying all this, let me just say that. One thing I saw that was very interesting earlier today, I think uh, Fauci came out, and he gave a a horrific number. Uh, He said that we could have 300,000 to 400,000 deaths in the fall and winter in the United States as a result of coronavirus. Um, I I don't have anything to say about any of that, because I'm not an uh, uh, epidemiologist, so I can't really know, know if that's an outlier scenario, but I think it gives you a sense of the magnitude of uh, downside scenarios, just from a public health perspective. And if you combine that with a lack of um, fiscal stimulus and a lack of social safety net, it does point out to me, at a minimum, that it's really the three to six month time frame that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of uh, the most negative economic scenarios. So when I'm talking about the near term. I think that it's relatively good compared to that sort of uh, you know medium-term outlook, uh, which is very much affected by uh, what happens with coronavirus.
1: Mm-hmm. And in your analysis, um, how much of a factor does another uh, shutdown affect? You know, if we're going to have 000, um, thousand new deaths, I, I think that the uh, authorities would probably shut down the economy again. Um, would how would that uh, impact the, the financial assets? Do you think?
3: Yeah. So uh, the way I'm thinking about it is, I'm thinking of a decay-shaped recovery. Uh, mm-hmm. First and foremost, I think that what we're seeing is certain uh, households, um, especially the richer households. Uh, certain companies uh, like the Fang-type stocks are doing really well because those are companies, uh, those are uh, households that are insulated. From the epidemic uh, relative to other people, other people who have to deal with the epidemic, the worse the epidemic gets, the, uh, those companies, those individuals will do worse, so that k becomes even uh, more pronounced as a result of that and so to me, that gives you a sense that the aggregate numbers that we're looking at don't really speak to the financial distress that's underneath the surface that there are households and companies that are really on the the cusp, the precipice. Uh, what we're seeing, for instance, in the high-yield area, the Fed, they've said that they're, they're willing to buy uh, high-yield ETFs. But are they willing to buy triple C individual uh, companies? No, they're not. Those companies are probably going to go to the wall. If those are retail companies, are they going to be able to get a Chapter 11 bankruptcy? Maybe not. Many times, what we're going to see is we're going to see liquidation, uh, commercial real estate. How many people are coming back into uh, into commercial real estate? Uh, apparently, in New York, only twelve percent of uh, people have gone back to work, whereas thirty some percent have gone back to work in the New York suburbs. So that dichotomy gives you a sense of uh, the problems within the commercial real estate sector in cities like uh, New York. So, what I think uh, in terms of the virus, the impact that um, the virus has is that it causes consumers to act before government. That means that a shutdown doesn't necessarily have to happen for us to have the pernicious effects that I'm talking about in terms of this K shaped recovery. If you remember, I mean, the NBER, they dated the first recession from February of 2020, not from March or April after the shutdown happened, but before the shutdown happened. We already saw, you know, the economy lose pace. David Rosenberg was actually pointing this out today in his uh, in his daily letter that February was when it happened. And so, to me, that's a perfect sign of how uh, consumers lead, government follows. So, to the degree that we do get any shutdowns, those shutdowns are going to happen largely as a result of. Uh, they have to happen because consumers have told the government that they're not going to uh, to go to those places.
1: Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. By by the way, you mentioned David Rosenberg, and I had seen those reports before, but I they were so long, I didn't know they were daily reports um, until I was prepping reports. So that actually makes it even more impressive uh, that he does it. He he is a really really impressive guy.
3: Yeah, you know, he has a team of guys. I haven't asked him about this, how he churns it out, but I mean, uh, I think it was on Tuesday. I mean, the the report that he churned out was just immense in terms of the data, you know, on an economic basis. Uh, you know, he was looking at daily price action in various markets like uh, currency markets, uh, stock market, uh, the bond markets. Very impressive stuff that he has. I definitely I recommend his stuff to anyone very highly. Yeah, um, just on the, on the K-shaped
1: recovery, um, you know, you, you mentioned the credit. Um, I'm just going to read something uh, from uh, an S&P Global uh, analysis that, that you uh, cited in your credit write-downs letter. That since the outbreak of the pandemic, credits at the lower end of the scale, says so single B and below, have represented over half of the downgrades, while 90% of defaults were from credits in the triple C category. Um, and that's actually something I'm seeing. I was just um, on Bloomberg today, and I was. Looking at the defaults and excuse me, I was looking at the downgrades and the majority of the downgrades uh, continue to be in the in junk bonds. So the worst bonds, just the the lowest rated bonds, keep on getting um, rated lower. In addition, uh, S and P Global forecasted that the speculative grade corporate default rate um, would double by June 2021 from 6.2% to 12.5% in the U.S. Um and, and I found that really interesting. Um, you know, I uh, Tyler Neville is definitely something of a, of a credit bull. Um, so triple C, triple C, uh, y- the spread on triple C yield was actually at a two year low. Um, so Tyler sent that to me, sort of bragging uh, that he was he was right. Um, and but and it, and it's true. So I think there definitely is a little room for you know if if people are projecting that defaults are going to double in a year, and um the yield excuse me the spread on uh, triple C debt is at a two year low. Um, that definitely implies that that something's going on there. Um, wh- what do you have thoughts on that or, or anything else in the credit markets?
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com.
3: Yeah, I think I think uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, one you you're pointing out to me a diffusion that is lopsided. Uh, yeah. You know, because on the one hand, you could say that you expect triple Cs to default more, but what you're saying is is that we're at that point in the cycle where the canary in the coal mine, the triple Cs, are being downgraded uh, a ton more. So the next move, obviously, is default, right? If, if you're, those are the ones that are being downgraded, then default is obviously next, because how much more can they be downgraded, not a whole lot? Um, so what that says to me is, is the Canary and the coal mine, junk bonds, especially the lowest grade of junk bonds, is telling us that we're about to hit the credit cycle that we haven't hit yet in this particular cycle. Um, the other thing that I thought that was really interesting, just on first blush of, of, about what you're saying is I recall they're talking about a difference in the magnitude of uh, the differential in the United States versus uh, in Europe. The, the numbers that I saw for Europe were lower than they were for the United States in terms of, of uh, default. And I don't know why that's the case, because I haven't seen the, the report, but it, it, I, it did stand out for me. Uh, maybe it has something to do with the policy response, that the uh, the safety net in the United States is perceived to be uh, more porous than it is in uh, Europe. And maybe this whole concept of the Fed has your back really doesn't apply as much as people might think. So to me, it does point out the degree to which we have some downside risk, that the Fed can get in there, they can buy junk ETFs, they can buy uh, single-name corporates. But you know how, how much are they willing to do? How far are they willing to go? Uh, I think we're about to find out. Uh, at the beginning of two thousand and twenty one when these defaults start happening for these these names,
1: yeah, I, just to continue on the the case shaped recovery um, there's an, another um, analysis that you, you you cite in in your uh, newsletter today um, from alignable and there's a there's a, a fourth quarter projection that forty two percent of small and medium sized businesses might not make it to 2021, um, so that the hiring outlook for October is flat. Um, And 67% of small and medium-sized businesses see uh, themselves negatively financially impacted by COVID, and only 14% see a positive impact. So what do you make of this K-shape where these um, small-sized businesses uh, really have um, no other option? Meanwhile, the largest and most liquid and most profitable uh, corporations in the US and the world um, have access to a massively liquid uh, corporate bond market that is... Um, being encouraged and stimulated by the Fed every day. Meanwhile, you know it's very hard to stimulate activity in, uh, you know, bank loans and stuff, and you know, issues of fifty thousand dollars, sixty thousand dollars, and and sort of a uh, small amounts. What do you see there, and and what do you think the end game is that is for is for that?
3: Yeah, I mean that is a really uh, um, tough question in the sense that uh, I, you can see some pretty dark things happening there. I mean. Think about it from an income inequality perspective, right? Because people have been talking about that for a long time. I think that there are a lot of people who have been saying that when you pump up asset prices because you're focused on monetary policy, it means that uh, you, you the wealthy get wealthier and people in the ordinary parts of the economy they don't benefit until the later stages of the of the recovery. And as a result of that, you you see widening gaps. That's been one of the the, the Theories uh, that's out there, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. But what you're talking about is the the same thing happening on the corporate level, right? I mean, because what we're basically saying is the Fed has your back only applies to these guys and not to these guys down here. And so as a result, you see a, a wide dispersion in outcomes. So w- when you ask the question, you know, where is where is this leading? My answer is it, it's not leading to a good place. It, it's leading to a place where companies like the ones you mentioned, the small businesses, they go to the wall. Um, and when those companies go to the wall, uh, it leaves an opening for the larger companies to take their place. Uh, they, they're going to mop up. Uh, you know, they're going to expand their market share. And yeah. that's pernicious in terms of their pricing power down the line. Interestingly, one thing that caught my mind uh, earlier today is uh, this whole thing about a bipartisan support for uh, you know watching over the fangs. I think it was Facebook, Apple, Google, and Amazon uh, that there was a House of Representatives report, which basically said, these guys have way too much power. We got to do something about it. To me, it points to regulatory um, action, irrespective of whether Trump wins uh the white House or biden wins the white House that whole this whole line of argument that you have this k on the corporate side and then simultaneously you have this regulatory action that's uh in the background points to you know massive uh regulatory risk for those high flyers in uh on the stock market right now yeah absolutely uh it's
1: it's a really really interesting topic i feel like we had continue to go on, um, but uh, time is running a little bit short. But first, Ed, I I, uh, feel like we have to talk about your AMA that you're doing with Ash, who uh, I'm filling in for today. uh, He's on vacation. But uh, you and he are doing an Ask Me Anything um, Real Vision Daily Briefing on on Friday. And it's going to air the following Monday for Columbus Day. Um, So uh, for all Real Vision members, um, you can uh, post your uh, questions for Ed and Ash um, in the exchange, I posted something in the Real Vision channel, so you can post as a comment. Um, if you can't find that and you're having trouble, you can also just post it as a comment um, to to this video. So you can ask, you know, Ed and Ash anything about markets, credit, crypto. Um, you know, you can ask about the Real Vision editorial team. You, you can ask. Um, you can ask Ash. You know, at what age did you develop your lifelong love of soccer? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were
3: gonna get that in there. That's good.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, um yeah, so definitely, definitely um to the people at home, definitely ask that. Um Ed, thank you so much uh for joining me. Although I feel like I'm I'm de- really joining you. Um it was uh, a great, great time uh, hosting you on the main segment of the daily briefing.
3: Yeah, and I, I hope to have you back as host many more times. Jack, it was a good inaugural spin. And uh thanks for uh thanks for talking to me. Uh,